even on the short 30-minute flight, I've got some just spectacular places that we fly um, with, you know, six to 800-foot bluffs all the way around a, a bowl-shaped basin. It's called the Bijou Basin, kind of just north of the area that we fly. Uh, the hour flights, we can get either, you know, up north of Colorado Springs, around the Castle Rock area, around Greenland, Larkspur, where all the bluffs and the buttes are. There's a lot of wildlife up there. And also on the right day, the hour flight, I could get up over Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs and kind of around the Air Force Academy and over on the west side of the city. Episode 83, Ultralight Piloting with Tracy Tomlinson. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. With over 15 years and more than 2,000 hours of experience in piloting ultralight aircraft, Tracy Tomlinson knows about ultralight flying. He started flying hang gliders in 1995 and has launched from pretty high peaks, including 14,000-foot Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs, Aspen Mountain, Jackson Hole in Wyoming, and even from the summit of Haleakala Volcano in Maui. Tracy, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to be a part of it. I'm glad to have you. So take a few minutes and explain to our listeners about how you got it started in ultralight aircraft. Well, I started, say, flying hang gliders back in 1995. And uh, hang gliders obviously are a weight shift controlled aircraft, unlike any typical airplane that's got no ailerons, elevators, or rudders. They're weight shift controlled. And uh, flying hang gliders just kind of led me into uh, powered hang gliders, which is what I'm flying now. They're actually a light sport aircraft. Uh, a lot of people look at them and think that they're a ultra-light aircraft, but what I fly is truly a light sport aircraft. It does requ- require a, a sport pilot rating, um, but unlike an ultra-light, you can also take passengers up with you as well. So my early days of hang gliding just kind of progressed into uh, weight shift controlled light sport aircraft. Okay, so weight shifting versus control surfaces. Go into that a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of like a motorcycle. You know, a motorcycle is a weight shift controlled uh, vehicle. You uh, can make it turn left and right by moving your weight around. And a weight shift controlled aircraft is essentially kind of the same theory, if you will. So, again, there's no controllable surfaces on the wing like ailerons or rudders, if you will. Uh, we move our weight around from side to side or forward or aft to control turning of the aircraft as well as flying fast or slow. So, uh, again, real similar to a motorcycle, it's it's a weight shift controlled aircraft. Okay. And you mentioned that you're flying a powered, more of a powered sport plane that many people would look at and think of as an ultralight. So, one of the things you had mentioned is not being able to take people up, passengers up on an ultralight. Is that a restriction because of the type of aircraft or just because of the weight that the, the aircraft can support? Well, an ultralight, by definition, as for the FAA, is a single-seat aircraft. So, obviously, anything more than a single-seat disqualifies it as an ultralight. 
Um, an ultralight also can weigh no more than 254 pounds, flies no faster than 55 knots, stalls no higher than 24 knots, and carries no more than five gallons of fuel. Uh, the aircraft that I fly, again, is not an ultralight by any single one of those definitions. Uh, it's technically a light sport aircraft. And uh, kind of compare the two, if you will, the maximum gross weight of a light sport aircraft is 1,320 pounds. Um, the stall speed is not higher than 45 knots versus 24 knots. And uh, cruises uh, no higher than 120 knots or 138 miles per hour. So, again, it, it's heavier. It's faster. It carries too many, you know, more than one person and carries more than five gallons of fuel. So it's a, a much heavier, much more capable aircraft, um, able to actually go places at a much quicker pace, if you will, and being able to carry passengers along with you. Okay. So how about certification? I imagine you have different uh, levels of training and certification for these various uh, levels of aircraft, right? That is true, yeah. And in fact, I, I can train a pilot to the ultralight level. Of course, in an ultralight, a single-seat aircraft, a person really doesn't want to go out and just buy an aircraft and without any training fly it. Uh, legally, he can do that, but just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. So how do you train a person to be able to fly an ultralight aircraft? Well, you do it in a two-seat light sport aircraft that has the same controllability um, features of that ultralight aircraft. So they'll train in a light sport aircraft and then, you know, can fly their ultralight aircraft, their single-seat aircraft around if that's what they desire to do. I also uh, train to the uh, sport pilot level. Um, and the sport pilot rating is what you actually need to be able to fly a light sport aircraft. Um, so, again, I, I can train to either the ultralight level or the sport pilot level, either one. Okay. So somebody just going up in a single-seater ultralight doesn't have to have um, – it doesn't officially have to have certification. I mean, they're nope. up with other planes and the, the flight yes. pattern and everything. Yes, they That's are. And again, interesting. Just, be, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. You know, there's people out there that, you know, think that they can uh, read a book and then go out and fly the aircraft after reading the book. Um, FAA really doesn't want anything to do with ultralight aircraft. They're, they're totally unregulated as far as licensing is required. But any time that you start to carry a you know a passenger or have the capability of carrying another person along with you, then FAA starts to get concerned, and then they want to make sure that those pilots are capable and qualified to uh, fly safely with with another passenger, if you will. <laughs> they don't yeah. care what you do to yourself, but if you have somebody else up there, they <laughs> they want to intervene, that is, right? <laughs> that is exactly right, unfortunately, yeah. And, uh, and again, just because it's safe doesn't mean it's legal. I don't know of anybody really that has successfully learned to fly an ultralight without any training in doing so. But there are people out there that have done so. I just don't know of any uh, right off the top of my head. Well, hopefully if they're doing that, they're out in a very rural area with no other air traffic around them. <laughs> That's all our hopes, yes, in, in a non-congested area away from other people and property, yes. No doubt, no doubt. So tell me a little bit about the aircraft that you fly in and train in down there. Well, I fly a uh, Evolution Revo. Evolution is the uh, manufacturer and, and Revo is the model of aircraft. Uh, 
It is uh, hands down, bar none, the highest quality, best built uh, weight shift aircraft. They're commonly referred to as trikes. Um, it is an all-American made product, actually made in Zephyr Hills, Florida. Uh, a lot of carbon fiber, a lot of CNC parts. It's a complete glass cockpit with a mode C transponder, so I'm able to fly in and out of towered airports uh, like Colorado Springs Municipal, for example, which is a class Charlie airport. I can even fly in and around uh, Denver in their class Bravo, a busy, busy airport like that. It's night certified. It's got landing lights, navigational lights, and strobes. Um, it's got a top speed of 115 miles per hour. It stalls at about 44 miles an hour and flies very comfortably uh, around 80 miles an hour or so. So, again, a very, very comfortable aircraft, very well built uh, using all chromoly steel as opposed to uh, aluminum. Uh, the wing is very fast and light and nimble. It's a very high-performance aircraft. Again, very top of the line. It's kind of like comparing a Ferrari to a Chevette. You know, a Chevette will get you from A to B, but the Ferrari will get there a whole lot faster and a whole lot more comfortable and turn a whole lot more heads. That's kind of like the Evolution Revo that I fly. It's a top of the line, high performance aircraft. Okay, cool. So it's like the jet of ultralights. That's pretty neat. Pretty much. Pretty much. You mentioned glass cockpit. Explain that. Well, a glass cockpit is an electronic cockpit um, with, you know, complete GPS moving map. It's got every airport in the nation programmed to an SD card. It'll tell me, you know, obviously the speed that I'm flying, airspeed. It'll also tell me what my ground speed is. It'll show me exactly how to get to any airport, how long it's going to take to get there. Um, it's got a artificial horizon. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So, I mean, literally the cockpit that I've got in my aircraft has more functions to it than, than a lot of really um, typical airplanes that, that people are familiar with out there. Okay. So glass meaning a lot of digital. So you're not going to tap on these gauges and get them to read right where you're in trouble. Well, exactly. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's a touch screen, 10 different pages of information, um, as opposed to, you know, one gauge that does one function, this glass panel, monitors all the functions, not only the engine uh, temperatures and, and operating parameters, but also, again, GPSs and artificial horizons. And, you know, it tells you if there's terrain ahead of you that is higher than what you are. So if you need to start climbing, it's going to let you know that you need to start climbing to clear that terrain. It's just very, very advanced. Uh, it's kind of like jet airplanes. You know, all the jet airplanes now are, are what are we call glass cockpits. Um, as opposed to individual gauges and a whole lot of them. It's just one screen that has lots and lots of functions to it. Right, right. So the term ultralight, like you mentioned before, can cover a very broad spectrum of, of aircraft. Can you go a little bit into the various uh, types of aircraft that would be considered ultralight? I know we have fixed wings, trikes, powered hang gliders, I mean, all kinds of things. Sure. Yeah. You know, airplanes, uh, e even an airplane, and they're typically called three axis airplanes. They have three dimensions of controllability, flaps, ailerons, and rudders. But again, an ultralight, um, you, you can have either airplanes, you can have weight shift controlled aircraft like I fly, you can have powered paragliders, powered parachutes. Um, those are all different categories and classes 
of different types of aircraft. So again, if any one of those types of aircraft meet the ultralight rules by definition, then uh, then they would be an ultralight aircraft, if you will. So yeah, there's a lot of different categories and classes, different types of aircraft other than just airplanes. And again, it all comes down to weight and, and number of passengers and speed, basically, as to whether it's an actual ultralight or not. Okay. So in your plane, are you out in the open or do you have an enclosed cockpit? It is open, open air. Um, I do have a nice big windshield in front of me that breaks the wind. It's kind of like a motorcycle windshield, you know, when you're running 80 miles an hour down the interstate. Um, it's a lot more comfortable to have a windscreen in front of you uh, to keep the bugs off you, to keep them from uh, getting in your teeth, if you will, as well. But it is open <laughs> cockpit kind of, you know air, wind all around you. The visibility is completely unrestricted. I mean, we see things from from my open cockpit that, unlike an enclosed cockpit that most airplanes have, that you don't see. I mean, we see all sorts of wildlife, elk, bighorn, sheep, buffalo, antelope. I mean, just anything that you can imagine uh, with the wing being above you as opposed to being below you and no, you know, canopy to look through or glass to look through, it's a completely unrestricted view. So that's absolutely sensational. Yeah, I imagine photography buffs would be love to be up there in, in your plane, the way it's configured to, to be out there taking photos of wildlife in the mountains. Oh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, I've got quite a few uh, neighbors that live around me that have uh, asked me to uh, do some aerial photography of their property. So, uh, yeah, it's exactly right. They're, you're not shooting through any glass with any re- reflections coming off the glass, or you don't have to shoot ahead or behind a wing to get it out of the sight. So, yeah, photography and and the capability of seeing what's below you is, is second to nothing out there. So in Colorado, we have a, a lot of afternoon thunderstorms. How do you deal with that being an open cockpit? You just, I mean, because typically you're not up there with a helmet like a motorcycle rider might be. What's the, well, actually, what do you do? Yeah, we, we do wear helmets. Um, the we helmets do, okay. have the, the headsets built into them with the microphone inside of the uh, face mask as well. So it is a fully enclosed helmet. And of course, we also are able to communicate back and forth with each other through an intercom system that the radio, the aircraft radio is also tied into. So we're talking in the air, um, flying just like we're talking on the phone right now, absolutely crystal clear communication, um, very quiet. Um, You can even listen to music if you want through an iPhone or an iPad while you're flying along as well. So it's a very, very comfortable and not deafening. You don't have to have that engine whining in your ears all the time with the noise-canceling headsets and technology that we have. So um, it it is very quiet and very comfortable. In regards to the weather, you're absolutely right. Um, During the afternoons, especially in Colorado, we get a lot of thunderstorms and and big clouds that develop and, of course, the thermal activity from the sun heating up the ground all day long. The air starts moving around, and the air is not near as smooth and friendly in the afternoon as it is in the morning. So typically during the month of June, July, and August, the hot summer months, I pretty much restrict our flights to to the mornings or the uh, late evenings just before sunset when the sun has settled down and and the air is moving up again. But, yeah, during thunderstorms or rainy periods, we just don't fly in, in that type of weather. We are weather dependent. 
and obviously I want everybody that comes up and flies with me to uh, experience the best flight that they can. So again, pretty much morning times during the summer. Now in training, obviously, as, as my students progress on through training, I do have to uh, train them in a little bit more bumpy air and a little bit more windy conditions because, you know, it's not a matter if, it's a matter of when that they're going to be out and flying and the conditions change. And so I have to train them to the abilities to be able to handle those conditions, whatever Mother Nature might throw at them. So it kind of depends on the student and where they're at in their training. Um, as to the time of day and, and when we fly, if you will. In his first book, Sydney to London, The Long Ride Home, Nathan Millward writes about his nine-month, 23,000-mile journey across the world on a 105cc postal carrier bike. However, that wasn't enough adventure for Nathan, so he again headed out on another adventure of 8,000 miles across America and wrote about that trip in his second book, Running Towards the Light, Postcards from Alaska. Pick up these two great books and get inspired to set out on your next adventure. You can find Nathan's books at www.nathanmillward.com, as well as the Amazon bookstore and your Kindle. Let's talk car racks, specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. It sounds like an awesome setup that you have because I was thinking about that. You have what roughly a 45 mile an hour stall speed, so that means you can get into in and out of very tiny airstrips. Yet you have the instrumentation and the lighting and, and the communications to deal with busier airports like a Class B. You said to uh, it really opens up where you can go with this thing. What did you say the range was? Uh, th this particular aircraft, say I cruise comfortably at about 75 or 80 miles an hour true airspeed. Um, I carry the, the fuel tank is a 14-gallon fuel tank, of which 13.3 gallons is usable. I burn right at 4 gallons an hour, so I've got about a 3-hour range, and at roughly 80 miles an hour, you're, you know, in the 240 to 250 miles that I can fly on a tank of gas very comfortably. Now, of course, if I had a tailwind, my ground speed is going to be faster than my airspeed is. So, you know, in a tailwind scenario, I can get down the road even further mileage-wise. But time-wise, say, it'll still be about three hours of, of time per, per tank of fuel, if you will. 
Okay, we're talking three three hours line of sight too. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. Good. Not winding no stop the signs. No no towns that I have to slow down or stop lights or crazy drivers out on the road that I have to concern about. Yeah, point A to point B, no turns. Uh, so again, yeah, 250 miles as a bird flies, if you will. And I like that. That's uh, that sounds good. And of course, most airports um, that you'll be landing in carry fuel. So as far as you know, if you're doing a long cross country flight, which I mean, you know, I've known of people that have flown all the way from Florida to Washington State in this type of aircraft and and of course you just land at an airport and buy the fuel at the airport right there and you're on your way so i mean you can literally fly all day long and you could you know very easily cover 750 to even a thousand miles a day if if uh if if your uh, bottom end would allow that if you will yeah no doubt and i assume you're still using avgas um, actually i do not have to use avgas i do have the really? ability to use avgas but um, what is really recommended, and this helps the pocketbook a little bit as well, is just a premium unleaded uh, pump gas fuel, so car fuel, if you will, motor gas. So I, I, I have the luxury of being able to burn either app gas or just unleaded fuel that you put in your car, either one. That's a great option. So that begs the question, what kind of engine are you running in this thing then? The engine that I'm uh, currently using is a, a Rotax engine. Uh, Rotax is pretty much the dominant engine in the light sport aircraft um, industry, if you will. It's by far the most popular motor out there. Uh, Rotax is a subsidiary of Bombardier, and of course that will ring a bell with a lot of people. Uh, Rotax and Bombardier have been making jet skis and and, uh, watercraft and snowmobiles for lots and lots of years. Well, they also have an aircraft engine division as well, which needless to say, the tolerances on an aircraft engine are much tighter. The inspection process is much more stringent. So the quality control of an aircraft engine is much higher than a a snowmobile, if you will. One thing about airplanes, you can't just pull over to the side of the road. So you need an engine that's very, very dependable and reliable. So my engine, say, is a Rotax 912 ULS. It's actually a 100-horsepower, four-stroke, four-cylinder. It's kind of a hybrid with uh, air-cooled cylinders and water-cooled heads and, of course, uh, oil lubrication in the case. Um, Say 100 horsepower, it's got a 2,000-hour life. Uh, TBO is what we call it, time before overhaul. And any Continental or Lycoming engine, which is real common in airplanes, that's the same life um, hours that they have on theirs. Uh, so it's a very, very reliable, dependable quality engine. In fact, uh, one thing that's really unique about the particular engine that I'm flying, uh, the 912, is that that's the engine that they're using in most all the Predator drones that are flying around um, in the military. So oh, really? Talk about, an, talk about an engine that is trued or tried and, and tested and, you know, literally shot at and blown up and and you know it always seems to make it back to the military base it's uh, got a lot of research and development behind it and again a very very tested tried engine out there so again dependability factor is really second to none yeah i'd imagine the government's not going to to put up a uh, million dollar drone or whatever those things cost and then put a a low budget engine in it i would yeah they're they're not going to put a briggs and stratton in there no not any means (laughs) 
I was watching some YouTube, just researching a little bit about your sport, and uh, I saw a guy that had home built a trike and put a 1600 cc Volkswagen engine on it for the yep. for the motor. <laughs> I thought, yep, holy exactly. cow! I'm not sure I would go that route. <laughs> well, there's everything out there. There's car engines from uh, Geo, out of Geo Metros or Suzuki Swifts, which are actually made by Suzuki. There's right. BMW engines. There's Kawasaki engines. There's Volkswagens and Corvairs and I mean, if you can think of it, probably somebody has put that engine in an aircraft in some form or some shape one way or another. Well, that's kind of, I guess that's how we got started in the first place. We just tried things and determined whether they worked or not. It's exactly right. Now, of course, you know, that all of those aircraft that you're talking about are experimental aircraft. Um, and, and literally anybody can do anything that they want to to an experimental aircraft. The aircraft that I fly is not experimental. It is factory built, factory certificated. So therefore, you know, you can't just go out and make any change to my aircraft that you can dream up. It has to be factory approved and factory tested. And FAA has to approve it to airworthiness the aircraft. So again, for a safety sake, um, not just anybody can do anything they want to a SLSA, a special light sport aircraft, as opposed to an experimental light sport aircraft. Right. Okay. So you obviously have a passion for the sport. Why would you encourage people to get started in it if they were at least a little intrigued? Oh, you know, a lot of people always look up in the sky and look at the birds flying and, and wish that they could, could experience that feeling as well. And, and the type of aircraft that I fly, I, one of my favorite sayings is life has made a moment that you'll never forget. And this will be one of those moments. Um, you know, a lot of people, they, they kind of put this on their bucket list, if you will, something that they have to do, kind of like skydiving, for example. Some people just got to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Well, not all those airplanes are perfectly good. I wouldn't want to go up <laughs> in a lot of them without a parachute on my back. But, uh, but you know, it's something, again, that they will never forget that they'll remember for the rest of their lives. And, you know, and my hopes is that not only will they come up and fly, but find out how enjoyable it is and how special it is and hope to uh, be able to pursue their uh, sport pilot rating so I can, you know, teach them how to, how to get that rating to where they can take their family and friends up with them as well and become part of those people's memories for the rest of their life as well. So it's very rewarding. Uh, to to uh, know that these people are never going to forget their experience and they're never f- going to forget their flight instructor that they flew up with. So it's pretty cool to be part of their memories for the rest of their life as well. So very rewarding in that aspect. Yeah, I can relate. I uh, I know I've told the story before in other episodes, but the the way I ended up in motorcycles was that I was standing in my driveway one day looking up at the sky and a guy in an ultralight was, was cruising around overhead. I live near an airport and, uh, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to go ahead and get one of those. And she said, no, you aren't. I'd rather see you on a motorcycle. So I went on and bought a motorcycle instead, but I think she wrongly assumed that the ultralight was more dangerous. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, it's, it's like anything. It, it's as safe as you make it. When you fly when you should fly, when you don't fly when you shouldn't, be it either because of weather or sickness or whatever, it's it's like your motorcycle. You know, if you ride on a a snowy day or when there's a little ice around or a lot of gravel on the roads or without a helmet, well, then all your risk factors go up exponentially when you do that. But if you, you know, ride when the weather is good 
and on nice dry roads and you're very cautious and a defensive driver, you can ride a motorcycle all your life and never have an incident. Well, same thing with aircraft. Yeah, so it's as safe as you make it. Absolutely. You know, and one one thing about the aircraft that I fly is, you know, literally I could land it on a football field literally if I needed to. Um, So I don't need a great big field. I don't need, you know, a long, long runway to put it down. So, you know, if an emergency were to occur, then I can go down and pretty much land anywhere. Uh, My aircraft is also uh, one of the very, very few aircraft out there that actually does have a parachute on board. It's a, a ballistic rocket. It's made by a company called BRS, which is a ballistic reserve system. In fact, the Cirrus SR-22, that half-million-dollar airplane that is uh, pretty new and popular, in fact, it's the number one selling airplane in the world today, um, is using that exact same BRS system in their airplanes. So again, half-a-million-dollar Cirrus SR-22 are all equipped with the same parachute system that my aircraft has. So, I mean, absolutely worst-case scenario if something went really bad, I just pull a bright red handle, a rocket fires my parachute, and the whole aircraft would come down underneath a canopy. Now, I've never had to use one. I hope I never do have to use one, but it is there just in case. Yeah, that's got to be a good feeling. One of those actually got into an accident uh, up where I live uh, a couple years back, and and that Cirrus ended up floating out of the sky, and the the people lived in it, and it was uh, yeah. It's really neat to see that technology being incorporated. It's meant to save lives, and and that's what they do. In fact, BRS claims that at 500 feet, that parachute will save your life. It deploys just that fast, split second fast, and you know 500 feet's not very high. That's just you know a football field and a half. So that rocket is split second fast, and say at 500 feet, you're going to walk away. And, you know, it's not going to be good on the aircraft, but at that point in time, you know, self-preservation is number one. And yeah, this is the last thing you're concerned with. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Or your wife. <laughs> well, maybe she might not want you to have a parachute. I don't know. Most, most, well, most yeah. of the time they do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> depends on the day. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> So tell me about a story. How did you get hooked? Was there just an amazing experience that, that made it click for you? Well, you know, really probably my first soaring flight on a hang glider um, is, is something that I'll, I'll never forget. You know, of course, when you start flying hang gliders, you, you start off on a little tiny hill and you run down that hill and the wing lifts off your shoulders, but your feet never really leave the ground. And you just keep working your way up the hill a little bit and a little bit higher and a little bit up higher off the hill. And, and then a soaring flight where I'm talking about is where you actually stay up in the air long, more than just gliding off of a hill and going down and land. So you either use ridge lift where a wind hits a hill and deflects up and you, you fly in that ridge lift. A lot of times you see birds flying along cliffs or mountains and they never flap their wings there in ridge lift. Or a lot of times you'll see birds that are just circling going in circles and they're going up and up and up and up and, and that, that is thermal activities like sailplanes, for example, that keep, keep them aloft. Um, so my first soaring flight was, you know, again, a moment that I'll never forget, you know, and I just truly, truly loved flying and soaring. And, and I always wondered, it's like, how can I make flying part of my career? How can I make a living out of doing what I absolutely love to do? And so, you know, along came basically powered hang gliders. Started off with a little single seat, an ultralight, a single seat, light, lightweight aircraft that 
was a soarable aircraft. I could, you know, start the engine up and get off the ground and then shut the engine off in thermal like the birds. Well, I just kept working on my hours and working on my hours and getting more and more experience. And I got a two-seat aircraft and got my ultralight rating, and then I got my sport pilot rating and kept working on my hours and finally got my instructor rating and and uh, never looked back ever since. So it all kind of was a passion that, that came from flying hang gliders, you know, over 20 years ago. And good for you for turning your passion into uh, something you can do to, to earn a living. That's uh, I love I, hearing those stories. I got the best job in the world. I, you know, I get to do what I love to do, and I, I get to meet really cool people every day from all over the world, you know, people from everywhere, all walks of life. And so it, it's a really, really say the best job in the world. I'm very fortunate that I get to do what I love to do. Yeah, that's great. So how about a time when things didn't quite go right? And how did you manage that? <laughs> Experience. <laughs> you know, there, <laughs> Good answer. There, there, there have been a couple of instances when, you know, the weather has changed. You know, it was beautiful when you took off, but about halfway into the flight, the, the conditions changed. And that comes back to my old hang gliding days and having all the hours flying that type of aircraft that I had. Uh, just be able to deal with the situations that Mother Nature throws at you. Of course, you know, you can't panic. You just have to relax and fly the aircraft, even when the conditions aren't necessarily perfect or absolutely a long way from perfect, if you will. And uh, so, you know, experience is, you know, the mother of teaching, if you will. So the more experience you have, the more that you can handle and the more relaxed that you can be. And, yeah, there, there, there's been a, an instance or two where weather has played a factor in kind of taking the fun out of it. But... You know, again, the more you fly, the more you're able to read the sky and, and the clouds and predict what the weather is going to be. And I've got lots and lots of sources of, of weather, uh, aviation weather and winds aloft. And, I mean, there's just all sorts of information that's out there now that wasn't out there 20 years ago. You know, the Internet's an amazing thing and, and weather and technology and forecasting and you know, Doppler radar and, and all of that has gotten better and better and better throughout the years. Of course, the more hours and the experience that a pilot has, um, the more mistakes that they have learned from and, and, and other people's mistakes. You know, watch what, what has happened to other people and don't allow yourself to get caught in the same situation that they got caught in. You know, there's a, another saying out there, learn from everybody else's mistakes because we'll never live long enough to make all of them ourselves. So, yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so have you ever had? To, have you ever had to put it down on a, a strip other than the intended place? Oh yeah, yeah. I've uh, throughout my 20 years of flying, I have had a few engines that have failed me, and of course, when the engine stops running, the the airplane flies just fine. It's a hang glider. It's got about a 10, 10 to one glide, meaning that it'll move 10 feet forward for every one foot of altitude that you lose. So, um, but you just don't go up very fast without an engine and the thrust that the propeller uh, provides. So, uh, yeah, I've had numerous engine failures throughout my career, but I will tell you that every engine failure that I've had, which is actually nine of them throughout my career, has been a two-stroke engine. And, you know, there's a couple of sayings with two strokes. It's One is it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when a two-stroke stops running. And another is a two-stroke never runs better than right before it quits. I will, <laughs> I will uh, be a testament to both of those. And 
you know, it, it finally got to a point in time that, you know, after about nine engine failures with two strokes, I finally bit the bullet. And this was long before I ever started instructing, but finally bit the bullet and, and bought a four-stroke engine. And, you know, four-stroke engines are much, much more reliable and dependable. You know, just using cars for an example, you see a lot of cars that are running down the road that are leaving quite a trail of smoke behind them. They burn more oil than they do gas. But the darn things just keep on running. Well, four-stroke engines are kind of that way as well. The operating window of a four-stroke is much, much wider than a two-stroke engine. So, um, you know, it, it costs more money. But, again, the dependability and reliability of four-stroke is, is second to none. I will tell you, ever since I started flying four-strokes, I have had zero engine failures. I've never had to land out with a four-stroke engine. So, yeah. Again, technology has come a long way over the last few years as well. So four-strokes by far are uh, super, super reliable. A lot of redundancy built into a four-stroke engine. They've got dual carburetors, dual ignition, dual fuel pumps. So if any one of those items fails in flight, the engine continues to run on the secondary system. So, again, redundancy of systems in aircraft engines are a pretty important thing. So uh, most all aircraft have that redundancy built into them. Yeah, that's a good thing to have, have when you're up in the air, no doubt about that. Yep, nowhere to pull over. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180TAC.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bentgate is here to help. Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check Bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. listeners about your company about your business and what it is you do and how they might get a hold of you if they're out in Colorado Absolutely. you bet yeah my, my company is fly Colorado ultralight and my website is is the same name fly Colorado ultralight.com uh, you'll see all sorts of information about the aircraft um, there'll be a nice biography of, of my history and my career and kind of what we've talked about and what I've come through to get to where I'm at right now um, there's a lot of testimonials on that website as well that you can actually read 
unedited versions of people's experiences. A lot of people, after they fly, will go onto my website and write a, a little brief paragraph or even a page-long explanation of what they thought of the flight and the experience. And so I, I, I you know, I encourage anybody that's listening to go to my website, read the testimonials that the people have written about the operation. Um, I fly out of the Colorado Springs area, and a lot of people know Colorado Springs with Pikes Peak in the background. Uh, Pikes Peak's a 14,110-foot mountain right in my backyard. And, of course, the topography around Colorado Springs is just absolutely awe-inspiring. It's beautiful, beautiful country and a beautiful place to fly over. And, uh, again, I do um, introductory flights. I do pr uh, primary flight training, so somebody that wants to learn to fly and get either an ultralight um, or a light sport rating, uh, I'm able to uh, provide that with them as well. Um, I do proficiency testing, so people that fly airplanes, for an example, that wanted to fly a different category and class of aircraft, like weight shift control, and I do proficiency training with those people to add another category and class of aircraft to their existing rating. Um, I do flight reviews, uh, pretty, pretty much the whole gamut of pretty much a full-service company. I am a one-man show, so I'm the person that you talk to. I'm the person that uh, will book the flights. I'll be the person that you fly with and, and the photographer on the flight. And so it's me and me only that you get to deal with. So unlike a big company that who knows who you might fly with one day, if you uh, call my company, it's me that you're going to get to deal with. Well, it looks like a fantastic experience. I was on your site looking at some of the, the photos and, and video um, about doing this, and uh, it's it's definitely something that would be worth setting some money aside and and visiting to uh, to check this out because it's not too often, and, you know, unless somebody goes and gets their own training, it's not too often that uh, they're going to get to go up on one of these things. And it's, What a way to experience the, the landscape. Exactly right. And and in, in regards to money, I'm kind of glad you brought that up as far as comparing it to a private pilot's license. Um, a sport pilot rating is much easier to obtain. Um, a, a fewer hours are required. In fact, uh, to get your sport pilot rating, the FAA minimum hours required are 20 hours is all of flight training. You need a minimum of 15 hours of dual instruction and five hours of solo time. And that, that satisfies FAA's requirements, again, to get your sport pilot rating. So unlike a private pilot rating where the minimum hours are 40, the minimum hours for a sport pilot rating are 20. So your cost factor is, is way, way less than, than a private pilot's rating. In fact, the average cost for the average person um, from beginning to completion of their sport pilot rating with all their books and materials and testings that they'll have to do is somewhere in the five to $6,000 range. We'll compare that to $20,000 plus to get your private pilot rating. You can see it's a much, much more affordable means of flying, and it's a whole lot more fun as well. I mean, it's literally open cockpit, wind in your face, um, an experience, uh, you know, it's kind of like riding a motorcycle versus a car or, you know, or um, a car versus a bus. You know, it, it's a lot more fun, and, and it's meant to be fun. So it, it's not only more affordable, it's a whole lot more fun than, than what most airplanes are as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
So that that makes me think of the the process of going through training. A lot of people will get their pilot's license and never really own a plane, but at least be able to go rent one from time to time to to go take a a flight, you know, just because they enjoy it. Can you do the same thing with ultralights or is it pretty much you need to buy one if you're going to get into it? You pretty much need to have your own aircraft. Uh, You know, unfortunately, we're in a very uh, litigious world today. Um, so therefore my insurance does not cover me when I'm not in my aircraft. So again, we can train in my aircraft, but by the time it comes ready for you to solo, you will need to have your own aircraft at that point in time. But again, these types of aircraft are a lot more affordable or can be more affordable. It's like anything. You can spend as much money as you want to spend, but you don't have to spend a great deal of money. You can fly or buy a light sport aircraft. A two-stroke, pretty much from anywhere from $10,000 and up. You know, a good, reliable four-stroke used aircraft, um, pretty much $20,000 and up. Again, you can spend as much as you want to, but you don't have to. So it can be a very affordable means of flying as well. So a lot more affordable, and, you know, we only burn about four gallons of hour or four gallons of gas per hour versus most airplanes that, one, have to burn gas, which is more expensive per gallon to begin with, but they also burn, you know, a lot more fuel. Most airplanes are in the, you know, minimum of eight gallons per hour, you know, 12, 15 gallons an hour and up. So therefore, when you're done flying, you go back to the pump to fill it up. It, it kind of takes a little bit of the fun out of it. At four gallons an hour and just burning unleaded tar gas, it doesn't hurt quite so much. So that that even makes it a little bit more enjoyable uh, because it is a lot more affordable way to fly as well. Yeah, it makes for a nice option for somebody that really wants to get up there, but maybe a little cash-strapped by comparison. That's yeah, good. absolutely. You bet. So if somebody books a flight with your company, Fly Colorado Ultralights, um, what can uh-huh. they expect in the day of the flight? So they show up. What is it they're going to experience from getting out well, of their the first, car and introducing themselves to you? Yep, yep. The very first thing that we'll do, obviously, is meet and greet each other, and, and uh, then we'll walk in and just kind of – briefly kind of look at the aircraft so they can see what they're getting ready to experience and do. But obviously, like like any adventure sports, if you will, there's a little bit of paperwork to do. We do I do require everybody to sign a waiver. Um, so, you know, I get some general information from them. They read down through the waiver and, and sign where it calls for, if you will. And then after the paperwork is done, I do have to do a little passenger briefing with the uh, the, the prospective student and a little pre-flight instruction. We talk about how to get in, how to get it out, what to touch, what not to touch, that type of stuff. And then we go over the helmets and the headsets and the intercoms and and uh, then we'll lay out. I've got all sorts of different flight suits and different weights of clothing. So depending on the temperature and, and the time of the year, then I can dress them accordingly to where they'll be nice and comfortable. We've got all sorts of different gloves as well. I hate people to get cold. So I've got a tremendous amount of different clothing options to dress them accordingly to the climate of the day that we're going to fly. And then once all that's done, we get in the aircraft and start it up and take her out to the runway and, and start having a whole lot of fun real fast. Very cool. So where do you fly? Do people have a choice or do you pretty much have a uh, an area that you like to take them just because you know? Well, I do offer three different introductory flights. I do a 30-minute flight, a 60-minute flight, and then a 90-minute flight as well. Um, to the flight time itself, you do need to add about an hour for 
that paperwork and passenger briefing and pre-flight instruction that I just explained to you. So for an example, an hour of actual flight time, they'll need to set aside about two hours of total time of allowance. And of course, where we go depends upon not only the weather and the winds, but also the length of the flight. Uh, one thing that we're blessed with here in the Colorado Springs area is even on the short 30-minute flight, I've got some just spectacular places that we fly um, with, you know, six to 800-foot bluffs all the way around a, a bowl-shaped basin. It's called the Bijou Basin, kind of just north of the area that we fly. Uh, the hour flights, we can get either, you know, up north of Colorado Springs, around the Castle Rock area, around Greenland, Larkspur, where all the bluffs and the buttes are. There's a lot of wildlife up there. And also on the right day, the hour flight, I could get up over Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs and kind of around the Air Force Academy and over on the west side of the city. Uh, the 90-minute flight even extends that a little bit further. We can actually get up around the Pikes Peak area, up over Woodland Park, or all the way up to southwest Denver around Chatfield Reservoir and fly the whole front range, the mountain flying all the way up there and back. So, uh, again, where we go and what we see not only depends on the weather and the winds, but also the length of the flight that we're doing, obviously. Yeah, it's got to be absolutely gorgeous. Knowing the area that you're talking about, it would be a phenomenal flight for, for anyone, whether you live here or, or out of state. It would uh, definitely recommend checking that out. Oh, it is. And let me tell you, the Pikes Peak flight, <laughs> you talked about something that you will never forget. Just absolutely spectacular up there all the high-altitude reservoirs that are up there. And, of course, the time of the year that's getting ready to come up right now with fall being right around the corner, I hate to say that. I'm not a winter lover. But fall, <laughs> with all the color changes and the aspens that are changing and the scrub oak that's turning yellow and orange, and, I mean, it is just the colors just come alive. And it is just my favorite time to fly, actually, is, is the fall. So late September, October, into November is just can be spectacular as far as the colors and, and the changes that we see with that time of year. So, uh, and I, I can dress you accordingly. So I, uh, I will not allow anybody to get cold. We normally do only fly when it's 32 degrees or warmer when it is below, below freezing. It's kind of like riding a motorcycle on a cold, cold day. It kind of takes a little bit of the fun out of it. Yeah, there's electric clothes and, and, you know, real thick, heavy clothes. But if you have to go to that extreme, I don't fly. We, we fly in nice weather. And uh, weather, weather is, is so such a dominant factor in making the flight enjoyable. I, I just do everything I can do to make the flight as enjoyable for everybody as we can. Right. Well, and that, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about that. So you're not limited to just a, a couple of months in the summer to flying. In Colorado, we have some gorgeous winter days that I guess if you're if you're looking to just be over 32 degrees, if you have uh, sun out and over 32, 32 degrees, you're flying? That's absolutely right. I, I fly 12 months a year. And, um, you know, there's a lot of days in January and February that, you know, the coldest months of the year that we get 40, 50 degree days and low humidity and Heck, you know, people that live out here on a 40-degree day are walking around in T-shirts. You know, it's not like a humid, humid area when you really feel the, the biting cold air with the humidity. Our, our winters can just be beautiful out here. So, you know, I fly 12 months a year, and uh, this last year, actually, we had a very, very mild winter, and I did a lot of flying this last winter. Now, January, February can be a challenge um, because of temperatures, but, again, on the right day, 
it, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I would imagine a snow-covered foothills right after a snowfall. If you have a clear runway to get up there, that has got to be one of the most amazing sights from the sky. Oh, it is. It's just words can't describe it. It really is. It's so cool. Yep. All right. Do you have a funny story to, to wrap the show up with? Oh, a funny story. Well, you know, there's, I won't name any names or anything like that, but, you know, some, <laughs> some people, uh, you know, it's kind of like a boat. Some people can go through pretty rough seas and never be affected, and other people with just a little wave get a little bit seasick, if you will. Uh, I, I I don't have any air sickness problems myself at all, but but uh, there, there there's a, a couple of people that I know that it, it's kind of a, a battle, but they love flying so much that uh, even when things don't get really really go really really well, man, God bless them. They just keep pushing on, and even though they're not feeling really great, they just keep flying and keep flying, and and they just. Even on a bad day like that, it, it, it's a better day than than spending it on the ground all day long. So uh, you know, it's kind of kind of a, a sick way, no pun intended there, of, of uh, bringing a little bit of humor up. But you you just kind of have to chuckle at that. You know, some <laughs> people some people just have a hard problem with it, but the majority of the people, it's just no issue at all. And again, I I do the best with all my students to fly in absolutely smooth nice air conditions to where that's not even a factor. But, you know, some people, they can just see the ground rushing by them and <laughs> it makes them a little queasy, if you will. So uh, I chuckle about that a little bit. But they love to do it, and they're going to push through it just because they, they need to be up there. I can understand that. Exactly right. The, the, <laughs> their passion for it is, is, is where it needs to be, and they just keep pushing on. I like it. I like it. All right, Tracy, well, I really appreciate your time and, and you gave me for the interview. Uh, I will definitely get your contact information, your website and phone number, everything up onto the to our site in the show notes so people can find you. And I hope that people do swing by and uh, schedule some time with you. It sounds like an amazing awesome. experience. Myself as well. I appreciate your time and, and all the listeners out there. Um, I know a lot of people might have questions um, about you know just anything. And, and don't hesitate to call. Um, go to go to my website or say look at the podcast information and uh, if there's any questions at all that you have feel free to call me anytime I'll be more than happy to discuss any specifics with anybody at any time um, again being a one-man operation if I'm up in the air flying or if I'm sitting down with a person they're first all the time so if you do get my voicemail do leave me a message I will call you back your message is very important, and there's nothing more than I that I love more than talking about aviation. So again, any any questions that anybody has, don't hesitate to call. I'll be more than happy and excited to talk with you about it. Well, good deal. I appreciate that. And you might find me knocking on your door one of these winter days after a snowfall to see if you can't squeeze me in, because uh, I might have to do that myself. I love aviation, hey. and there's nothing cooler. It'll be something you'll never forget. Life is made of those moments. And I'd love to be a part of those moments. Good deal. Good deal. All right, Tracy. Thanks again. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. We'll see you. Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to AdventureSportsPodcast.com and click Contact Us. 